What was your call to follow Jesus like? What was your call to follow Jesus like? We have different stories when it comes to that, right? Some of us were called as infants and brought to the church by our parents and godparents. Some of us wandered from that first call only to be called back by God's grace. Some of us came to know the Lord later in life being renewed and awoken by the work of the Holy Spirit and converting when we were older. But all of us were called to follow Jesus. And for those of you that are joining us for the first time this week or weren't here last week, we're continuing today in a sermon series called Patriarch and Promise, looking at the life of Abraham and looking at his life and the events of God forming him into a people through the New Testament, looking at that vantage point. And so we continue with the second sermon in that series today. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open to Genesis chapter 11 um, as well. If you don't have your Bibles, uh, the uh, order of service has the readings in it. And just catching up from last week, we remember that God preserved the Messianic line from Seth, the son of Adam. First through Noah, who who God saved through the flood, then through Noah's son Shem. And Shem's line appears twice in Genesis. Once in Genesis 10, and then once again in Genesis 11, after the Tower of Babel. This is because, once again, God is promised to preserve his messianic line. He's promised to preserve the lineage of Adam. He's delivering on the promise he, met, he made in um, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that the son of Eve will, the lineage, rather, of Eve will bruise the serpent's head. And so, like a good movie, here we have the narrator in Genesis setting us up with what's going on before Abraham, showing us the background, showing us what God is doing and how God is working, even when it doesn't seem obvious, and then zooming in here to Abraham, Abram at the time. Like a good movie, we zoom in to Abram and the lineage and what God is doing to confront the devil and ultimately bring about salvation. Now, as you look at Genesis 11, there's two issues, at least, confronting God's plan of salvation. Number one, we talked last week about the fact that Abraham's family is contaminated. They're contaminated by what? Paganism, right? Paganism. You'll remember we got into some of the names and the fact that the people of Ur were Chaldeans. They were a people who worshipped the moon and the moon gods. And even the names in Abraham's family shows that. And then secondly, what else do we run into in today's 
passage, verse 30, that is a block, seemingly, to God's plan of salvation. Sarah is barren. This is a problem, right? If God is going to bring forth from the line of Adam through Shem a child, how is he going to bring forth a child? You see, we know the end of the story, and so we don't see that immediately as, as a problem. But the first readers of this would have seen these two problems very clearly. The Jewish people would have seen that the contamination of paganism and the barrenness of Sarai at the time were barriers to God's plan. There were three things that God does in order to combat this. How does God plan, God's plan continue? Number one, through faith. We heard a lot about faith this morning. Faith in God's promise. We heard that in the Hebrews passage as well as the Genesis passage. Number two, through the assurance of God's election of a people. And number three, through obedience in God, called to be a part, and God's people called to be a part. So faith through God's, in God's promise, assurance in God's election, and obedience in God's call to be a part. God's promise in Genesis 3.16, as I said to Adam and Eve, would not be thwarted, and ultimately we see God smash through these barriers for salvation. But think about how much the devil has been trying to block this salvation plan. Think about what's gone on just in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. The demonic activity, the murder, the fratricide of Cain and Abel, false gods, general wickedness, the angels, the dark demon angels seducing the sons of men, or the daughters of men, rather, and trying to pollute the line. Noah and his story, where God has to save humanity through a flood because things have gotten so bad, and the Tower of Babel after Noah, where, God, where people are trying to build a monument up to walk among the gods. And outside of the biblical witness, we also see plenty of evidence of this wickedness in this era. We see all sorts of human slavery, warfare, human sacrifice, brutality, pagan worship. But God is going to tear through this. So look with me first at Genesis chapter 11, verse 31, as we look at the first reading, where we read, Terah took Abram and his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, the daughter, his daughter-in-law, and his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. So this is interesting because we go from the genealogy into action here. Where Terah, Abraham's father, moves. He picks up the whole clan and moves them out of Ur. But what's also fascinating is that the testimony of St. Stephen in the book of Acts tells us that God called Abram while he was in Ur of the Chaldeans. And so what's going on here is that the father is actually listening to the son. 
and not even the firstborn son, because Abram is not the firstborn son of Terah, if you do all the genealogy numbers, but that Haran moves his family at the call of God, listening to Abram. But he doesn't go the full way, right? So they leave Ur. We continue on. Terah dies, and Abram continues to heed God's call. In chapter 12, we'll pick up next with an interaction that's very personal between God Almighty and Abram. Look at 12.1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. One of the things that doesn't come through in the English, but is very um, forceful in the Hebrew, is God's first call to Abram. We translate it, go from your country. But in the Hebrew, it's halach. And it's, double halak. It's, it's actually written twice in the text. Go, go, says God. Go, go. Go away. Go out from. Depart from. It can also be translated, come away. God is here telling Abram that he needs to depart. He needs to get out of town. And not just that, but he has to separate himself from his country, sometimes translated land, from his kindred or his relatives, and from his father's house, ultimately, because, remember, he's the firstborn, so he's not taking, he's not the firstborn, so he's actually departing from Haran's house. Think about the cultural implications of that for Abram. That kind of sacrifice, to go forth from his country, his kindred, his father's house. This is God's first command to Abram. It's a drastic thing. You know, how many of you have moved at some point in your life? Right? Maybe it was when you went to school or when you were tired or, you know, you needed a bigger house or apartment. You got married, right? Those big transition points in life. We move. Moving is a pain in the butt. Right? Even today in our modern society, even in, in a society where, where we can, you know, rent trucks and even get movers to move us, right? But Abram is having to move here in this ancient time, and he's having to leave almost everything. Almost everything. And he's taking with him, or he's leaving rather, uh, his good name in the city. His family had dwelt there for generations. He's losing his influence and privilege. He's losing his protection of being in a city that has walls and an army, all of that he's departing from by God's command to go out, to go, go, to depart from. He's not just purchasing some new land or an apartment, but he's having to rely entirely on God for all of these things. And so the reader is asked, and we're asked, to to look at God and say, Are God's promises worth it? Are God's promises faithful? And we're going to get the answer 
that's the next point of the sermon here, yes, that we can be assured of God's selection. That we can be assured of God's election, of us as his people. Abram is not just moving, he's changing his life entirely. Why? Why? Because God's promises are effective and God stands behind them faithfully. Look at verse 1 and 2 in the second lesson, the Hebrews lesson, where we get a New Testament perspective on this very point. We read Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. And then jump down to the story of Abram. It's on the next page in your bulletin, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out, called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. He went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise and in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. And I love verse 10. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder was God. And so here we see why is it that Abram trusts in the promises of God? Because he has this faith, this gift of assurance. And because he sees beyond his years in God's plan. Abram demonstrates great faith towards Yahweh, which is rendered the Lord in most translations. It can be rendered Jehovah in older translations. The one true God is the Lord, and he backs his promises. Look now at Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. Once again, after looking at that Hebrews passage, what does God promise? And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Break that apart. What's God promising here? What are the things that he is assured of? Number one, that God's going to make of him a great nation, a people. He's going to get rid of this issue of barrenness somehow. Number two, that God's blessing or favor is going to be upon Abram. Number three, that fame, greatness, importance, power, what's in a name, things that he all left, will be given to him. And more so because they will be named after him. And finally, that he will be a blessing, which is kind of interesting. It's different than saying that God's going to bless him, that he will actually be a blessing, right? So sometimes you'll hear the phrase, blessed to be a blessing in Christi Christianity. That's where this, this is where that comes from, that we are blessed to be a blessing to others. In fact, 
that he's not just going to bless his own people, but that he's going to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Verse 3 says, a little later, as, he's, as Abram is worshiping God, God also promises him land. Look down at verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. So Abram, Abram might be leaving many things, but he's also leaving many things for great promises in faith and trust in God's assurance. And how does Abram respond? He responds with obedience with joyful obedience. Abram responds with obedience and also with worship. He leaves the past all for the promises of God. Look at verses 4 and 5. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. He responds with obedience to the Lord's call. And his first act upon entering into Canaan is to do what? To worship. We continue on with verse, with verse 6. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now, one of the things that I want you to see that doesn't come through in the text is the geography of what, all that's going on here. So I had Lauren um, actually take one of the maps and put it on page 4. Your Bible might have a better map, and I invite you to look at that if it does. But this map is from the ESV Study Bible, and it shows just how much Abram is traveling. Look at where Ur is, present day um, around Iraq, down in Babylonia, on the Euphrates River. Do you see the dotted line there? How far they travel up to Haran? I think that's almost the borderline of Turkey or Armenia. It's certainly pretty far north. And then over from Haran, they go to Aleppo, and then all the way down to Shechem. So what's Abram doing traveling through the land here? Because what we don't see in the text is a type of obedience that we do see here in the map. What's he doing? He's taking this grand tour of the land that God has promised him, the land of Canaan. Why is he doing that? How is that an act of obedience? Note that in the text we're told the Canaanites are still in the land. You see the, the issue here. This is a obedient trust in God for his protection and provision. Right? He's going through occupied enemy territory that the Lord's going to give to him. 
And what is he doing? He's worshiping as he goes. Now, you might not catch this because, again, to our 21st century mind, it doesn't jump out to us. But in the places that he's worshiping, he's setting up alternatives to the Canaanite gods. Right? And so what is he doing when he's building altars? Um, Professor Dan Hawk, who uh, I actually went to seminary under, but writes for um, many IVP dictionaries and things, says that when he builds these altars, there's different kinds of altars. There's sacrificial altars. There's monuments to people and encounters with God. But there are also altars that are boundary markers. And so what... Abram here is doing in verse 6 and on is claiming this territory as his under God's protection. He's not, notice, making sacrifices on these altars, although he might do that, but that's not what the text emphasizes. The text emphasizes the fact that he's traveling through claiming this territory because of God's promise. He has the authority to do so. And thereby, he is setting up a conflict with the Canaans. God is Canaanites. He's setting up a conflict with them. It's not like he's hiding. They know that he's there. And he's saying, your God, no. Here is my altar to the one true God. And so he's setting up this conflict between the gods of other nations, particularly the Canaanites, and the one true God, Yahweh, the Lord. God. The late Presbyterian scholar and commentator Meredith Klein writes, the altars erected at Bethel and Shechem on this first passage through Canaan claimed it as the Lord's holy domain and expressed faith in God's promise to grant it to the elect. Perhaps this is why the Lord chooses to reveal himself to Abraham or to Abram at the time. Look at verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. And we quoted that earlier, showing God's promise. But notice, what is God doing here? He's not just speaking to him. He's not just conveying information. He actually appears to him and says, I am giving this to you. Why? Because it takes great faith. And Abram, frankly, needs the bolstering, I think, to be doing what he's doing. The Lord has called him to this hard thing, and so he reveals himself to him. God bolsters Abram's faith and honors it by appearing to him in his own land. Abram's clear vision of God detaches him from the world, just as it always detaches God's people from grounding their lives too deeply in the present. So says Kent Hughes. Abraham's clear vision of God, God's call and the future detached him from the world as it will always detach God's people from grounding their lives too deeply in the present. What does this passage say to the church? Well, number one, that God is faithful to his promise. First of all, we see that God faithfully keeps his promise. He continues to act in Genesis. We know that the Lord God's word can be trusted both then 
and now. And while some and what are some of the promises that we partake in as sons and daughters of God? Well, there are many. But our gospel passage gives us some insight today. Number one is healing and forgiveness. Notice what Jesus does with a paralytic man in Mark chapter 2, the gospel passage that Deacon Mark read for us today. Where does he start? Does he start by healing him? We always think that. We jump to that. But the healing is actually a sign of something much more important. What does he say? Look at verse 5 of chapter 2 of Mark's Gospel. And when Jesus saw their faith, that is the faith of those who had torn through the roof to lower the paralytic, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Which of course we know is the point. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise up, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Jesus forgives the man's sins, and then he heals him. The former more important is more important than the latter. And so, as Christians, our joy is first in God's forgiveness, in God's power, to be true to his promise to make a way for salvation. We should never take for granted the fact that God has made a way for our sins to be wiped clean. And that every day, individually, and every Sunday corporately, the miracle of forgiveness goes on right here. Right here. The miracle of forgiveness goes on in you and in me through Jesus' through work by God's promise. Secondly, we as a people of God, as the church, have the assurance of election. God calls Abram to leave his country, his relatives, his father's house, because God has chosen him to be blessed, to be a blessing. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God's purpose for choosing Abram was to continue this promise of his faithful line to bring forth Jesus Christ. The seed of Abram, Abraham then, the children of Israel, were the only elect people of God at that time on the earth. Says Edward Harold Brown. But their election was the privilege of being God's church. The subjects of his theocratic kingdom the recipients of his grace, the depositories of his truth. And so in the Old Testament, God elects the sons and daughters of Abram, Abraham, of course, we know. But in the New Testament, God has elected the church to be his sons and daughters, to be blessed, to be a blessing. Our own election as members of the church while sharing God's blessing is different and better than the old election. In God's passage today, Jesus calls the apostle Levi in the gospel passage. Levi is also known as Matthew. What does he say? 
He says, follow me. And of course, Levi leaves his tax collecting and everything else in his life to follow Jesus. Why does Jesus call Levi or Matthew to be one of his apostles? Why him particularly? We don't know. Mark doesn't tell us. But what we do know is that God has chosen to open his people beyond the physical seed of Abram to all people through faith. God has given us this assurance of an election that we too can look with conviction for things hoped for and unseen, as Hebrews tells us. The church has seen the kingdom of God in a way that Abram never could but looked forward to. And yet we still look ahead to its consummation, to its fullness, to that heavenly city, Jerusalem. But in a way beyond Abram, you, friends, can rest in your assurance of election. As St. Peter writes to the church in his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 9, he talks about the church saying, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you received mercy. You see, God has called you through his Holy Spirit to be blessed with eternal life that you might be a blessing to others. And how do we respond to that? With obedience and joy that we are called apart so that we can bring others into that blessing. As God called Abram to come away and to go to the land of promise, so the Holy Spirit calls you and I as the church to come apart from the world, just as confused and mixed up our world is as ancient Ur. In baptism, he's given you his promise of grace as being a son or a daughter, as well as a gift of eternal promised land. In confirmation, he pours out his blessing with abundance to equip you and me, grace upon grace, so that we might be a blessing to those around us. Where have you seen his promises in your life, friends? Where are the altars and monuments of his grace in your life? What travels and altars has he led you on and caused you to build? Let us pray for more faith so that we too can walk in obedience and see that unless we faithfully walk apart, we cannot be a blessing to the world around us. Let us confidently take spiritual territory for the name of his glory, presenting his truth to others, extending the call, and leading others from darkness into marvelous light, just as we were transferred from darkness into his marvelous light. Extend the blessing, brothers and sisters. For Abram's story is yours and mine also in coming out of the world and being part of the kingdom of God so that we can bless all the families of the earth also. So I want to invite you this week to look at the questions on page 5 I've mentioned some of them here in the sermon. 
But where do you see God's sovereign hand over history preserving his promise to Adam? Number two, what does God reveal to Abram? When and how does Abram respond? Number three, how does God's promise in chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, remain true to the church and to you as a son or daughter of God? Number four, what are some things that we are called out of or to remain apart from in our day and culture? Number five, how does the church build altars of worship to claim territory in God's name? Because we still do this, or we ought to. How do you build altars of worship to God in your life? And finally, number six, what sacramental ways do you claim things as God's own? There's lots of answers to those questions, but I want to leave them with you as you meditate on God's Word this week and as we go forward to next week where we'll pick up with Abram, who is so faithful this week, stumbling. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.